Hello, you're listening to a spoiler-filled film conversation. Hooray! Meantime for Mike Lee and England. Oh, shut up! Oh, no, you shut up! You shut up! Oi, oi, stop that! (laughs) It's meantime. Time to be meaner. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) I'm Richard. Uh, with me to do the podcast are my other jobless fucks. <laughs> uh, Anthony. Hello. And Abby. Actually, we do. We all got jobs, right? Right, guys? Yes. Yeah, but for a long time we didn't. Yeah, so plenty of similarities to the characters. Terrible moustaches, huge glasses. Um, anyway, sorry, Abby, Anthony and I are now going to discuss the TV movie from 1983, Meantime. Uh, in the meantime... <laughs> I would just like to point out that this is the kind of um, social decay into which I was born in 1983. <laughs> and were a part of... <laughs> <laughs> we all were. We all. Oh no, you were born this smack on '83. Mm. Though this probably would have been made before then. But while you were knocking around in your mum, presumably, Mike Lee was out pointing cameras at Gary Oldman and Phil Daniels, and Tim Roth, and Pam Farris, and Mario. This is the slyest fucking <laughs> credits I've ever given. No. Um. So I selected Meantime for us all to have a little look at. Uh, it was a TV movie from 1983 directed by Mike Lee uh, written slash devised uh, by Mike Lee and then acted out slash improvised by Phil Daniels, Tim Roth Pam Ferris uh, Alfred Molina, Gary Oldman Jeffrey Roberts and Marion Bailey and it is fundamentally about the goings-on of a working-class family during Thatcher's Britain, fucking Thatcher, fucking fail-state, fucking garbage, bloody bullshit. Yeah, we were all born during Thatcher's Britain, guys, weren't we? Yes. So, in a way, it's about our parents' generation. And they're horrible kids. Like, I had a sister... I had a sister who was 16 in the 80s, so she's close enough <laughs> to the um, despondent, agitated young men in this. But yeah, the glasses were bigger, the haircuts were worse, and the times, as far as Mike Lee was concerned, were worse. Unless you're, you know, up-and-coming middle-class family, then you might be all right. Yeah, I mean, the plot is essentially about two delinquent young men uh living in a working class flat dealing with their shitty parents, shitty lives and shitty attitudes it's your classic kind of kitchen sink shit people swearing, shouting being endlessly sarcastic and surly and difficult or in the, t- in, or in the case of Tim Roth just making weird breathing noises, that's mainly what he did so I hated those breathing noises <laughs> I wanted to reach into the screen and the past and strangle him. Oh, I'm not going to say nothing. I get occasionally I find myself mouth breathing like a complete moron and feel bad. Oh, we should say for like 
audiences out there that aren't British. This is like what the crux of British TV is like. Like you might be, you know, you might be sitting there watching like Doctor Who or watching films like Four Weddings and a Funeral and Notting Hill. It's like those are outliers. This is what all British TV is like. Although I would <laughs> say it this is particularly bleak. Yeah, it's just all sarcasm and cynicism. It's kind of just the bored anxiety filled not anxiety, it's just it's just childish angry like constant it's it's childish kicking out at nothing anger. It's just the depressing state of things. It's all of the things that are bleak and upsetting about being on the dole as a family, or I think the mum maybe is not, but it's just working class misery without anything to distract you like modern times. Oh. You've just got yourself and your shitty couch and maybe a newspaper and a TV with four channels. So, yeah. Maybe you'll just hop in a big uh, discarded bucket and roll about <laughs> like like Gary Oldman does in this. <laughs> that did look fun. Just pathetically getting cross and angry and hitting a, a big bucket you're in. <laughs> it did, did look fun. I mean, sort of, in like a children playing kind of way. But, you know, a skinhead being, you know, filled with testosterone that he doesn't know what to do with. Yeah, it's very much the not-so-great Britain portrait of this country that Mike Lee decided to make. I think the idea was uh, he made lots of play for the days, they called them. It's essentially uh, made-for-TV movies, uh, usually with some sort of socially relevant themes and uh, obviously some interesting British actors. I think he did, like, Nuts in May. I've seen that. It's like a funny comedy about people camping and getting wound up about not getting things your way. Um, anyone else? You guys seen much of uh, Mike Lee's stuff? Can you think of any? I was surprised that I hadn't. Thinking about it, I think um, I keep getting him mixed up with Ken Loach, who is a similar kind of like filmmaker. Yeah, they um, are both two sides of the same bleak coin. Yeah. <laughs> so I've seen a lot more Ken Loach. I have seen a couple of his newer stuff. I saw the, the Turner. Um, yeah. And Peter Lee. <clears throat> <laughs> Sorry, there's, there's a lot of mm's in it. Peter Lou, what? Sorry? Peter Lou. It was... Um, Peter Lou, what's that? Uh, it's a film about a... Like a kind of... Um, Potter potty. <laughs> um, how do I explain? Not quite... Not a riot. So is it like punning Waterloo with a person called Peter? Yes, sort of. So you've uh, seen... It's, it's like a film about... Um, like a, a a protest um and like it uh, being attacked by the military like it's a thing that did happen i think in manchester sure. i want to say yeah it's easy people often think of like the big mobile phones and yuppies and uh sort of you know business really kicking up a notch in terms of capitalism in the 80s but actually a lot of it was sort of sad strikes, upset, rioting. There was a lot of like, oh, it's fine to send the army uh, to, what was it? The, the Falklands. The Falklands and just fucking attack people doing their job and be a big, awful bully. I mean, the politics of the country 
were really divisive. Well, a lot like it would be in the future, I guess. Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, uh, so you've seen a little, but not a lot, but I'd heard of Mike Lee. Yeah, and I like I, I I suppose I was coming in because I had them mixed up in my mind, expecting like Ken Loach kind of stuff, which, to be fair, is is the same thing what I should have well, been see, expecting so it was fine this this was what I was expecting kind of like just bleak working class Britain you know mm. so Ken Loach he did like Kess and like did you Kathy come home is that him or is that someone else yes. again it was kind of like a bit more northerny focused like working class lives getting bullied and treated like shit by everyone Definitely, they touch on the similar concepts of uh, working class environments for Britain and how bullshit they are. Abby, had you seen much of uh, Mike Lee? I know you'd watched Mr. Turner with me when it came out. Well, mm. I've seen Secrets and Lies, but I don't remember it that well. And I've seen Abigail's Party as well. Or your namesake? Is that what you're named yeah. after? I... I doubt it, but at the same time, can't rule out entirely. <laughs> Um, okay so what were you expecting I hadn't necessarily put two and two together that he was the director of some of these but I knew he directed Abigail's Party so I guess I was expecting the kind of squirming humour that we got but maybe more farce yeah, he does. You know, he does so in comedy. I think there's a lot of comedy in this. It isn't quite slapstick or anything. Mm. Maybe there's a lot of kicking and shoving and you know, funny looks and th- witty things that have been said. There's a lot of sarcasm that's kind of annoying and shit. But there's also some really like top-notch sarcasm as well. So, um, but then see, the, I, just before I watched this film a little while, I watched this film fairly recently I watched it again for the podcast, but I was just looking into him, because I was like, oh, I haven't watched enough of his stuff, because I liked what I had seen like I'd seen Naked, which is again, another antagonistic film that kind of winds you up and is annoying, and you just it makes you tense and uncomfortable and frustrated with what the characters do and say, just as you're just starting to like them and it gets you, you know, it really gets under your skin, it's annoying and then like Topsy Turvy, which is like a nice period drama musical, uh, it's full of wit and colour, and and again loads of great British actors. And you go, oh, well, don't, you know, they don't, you know, other than the quality of them, you don't say they're connected, other than they are by him directing them. But yeah, I don't know. I came across it and I went fucking state of Jeff Daniels's moustache and hair in this. <laughs> oh, and then Tim Roth comes in and he's doing so much by doing so little and it's just like oh oh i'm so wound up by this film instantly <laughs> i believe abby when you started watching it you did like a primal scream within 15 minutes of phil daniels being annoying <laughs> i did i buried my head in the sofa and just let out a scream <laughs> yeah what do you think leads up to making these films where it's just unrelenting it's worse than horror because it's, it's like a kind of frustration and tension like nothing else isn't it I think he's just, he's seen it. He's observed it. He saw it and went, you. 
Yeah, just that kicking out against nothing, anger and animosity building on top of each other. Just dicks, people who are dicks, and it, everything like. If if people were more, if the characters were more rational and reasonable, they wouldn't be that big a problem, because <laughs> you know they're, they're all you know they're out of money, so that's frustrating. But fundamentally, they just answered questions straightforwardly, and you know gave each other a bit of space. But they can't because it's Thatcher's Britain, and that's not what Mike Lee sees as true. It's a bit like a Shane Meadows movie, without the plot having any focus. You know, Shane Meadows brings tension to a point, has the sort of narrative in mind. I feel like Mike Lee's just like, it was bollocks. It is bollocks. Let's show the real 80s Britain that I am aware of, you know? But anyway, I thought it would be interesting. Because it still has some potency to it, because that kind of stuff did bleed into the 90s when we were more aware of it, being that little bit older. And I just remember stuff like, like, it was particularly when he was having a bath and he was using a saucepan to put water over his head. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> Plus, you know, we've all we've all been in that kind of not much work going around, kind of not much to do every day, boredom. So maybe. Sure. That's People why it aren't kind of going... hit a little close to home for me anyway, sometimes. Especially during a pandemic. And people going forward are going to appreciate less this, what it was like when there was no internet. Fucking no satellite TV, mate. Yeah. <laughs> like, there were four channels. Nothing. All we had was giant metal buckets to roll around. <laughs> <laughs> you had to make hey, your own fun head. with a stick. <laughs> You two are both from Tenetti, so there were probably plenty of like metal buckets and trash. <laughs> oh, I lived in a tidy bit of town, Anthony. Well, <laughs> less said the better. Yeah, we weren't hitting sticks and hoops down the road, though. We were playing like you know, video games and stuff. What was the kids. weirdest thing in your like neighbourhood? What rat's nest of a place did we go and fanny around? That sort of thing, or yeah. Up to, you're looking for like an upturned digger who used to play chess, <laughs> chess in or something. I don't know what I'm looking for. Otherwise, you live there. Anthony, what's the weirdest thing you've been in? <laughs> <laughs> don't know. We used to make like dens out of old trolleys and wooden pallets and stuff like that. Pretty classic. There was a lot of, uh, around where we were, there was a lot of um, half finished. Um, like housing developments that were started so they were like piles of mud or they were foundations but they were just like that for years yeah yeah the usual uh making dens and stuff and bits of corrugated iron and carpets being Hmm. shoved in alleyways and corners but like growing up as a little kid i lived in a shop so a lot of the things i'd play with were just the backstage stuff of a, of an electronic uh, light shop, so it would just be like bits and bobs off of light fixtures and cables and spool. There were lots of cardboard spools around that didn't have cables on anymore. That were quite fun to roll about, but um, nothing. I didn't get in anything other than cardboard boxes that had uh, stuff delivered in. That's all I needed as a kid. I needed a big cardboard box full of polystyrene packing peanuts and a big old loaf of bread, and I was happy. Simpler That's all I need now. 
Just need that one big delivery. <laughs> and then you're good. Go for, buy a fridge or something. Anyway, this, uh, we, you know, early sidetrack, not talking about the film. Abby, your childhood getting in anything weird? Not really, because I was sort of like semi-rural, so it was mostly pissing about in rivers, getting muddy. <laughs> I remember us in adult life breaking the... Uh, bridge, the little wobbly bridge in a playground. By <laughs> not on purpose, on by accident. Yeah, not like pricks. Just like heifers, <laughs> big heifers. Jumping up and down <laughs> on Anyway, before we start, you know, confessing to further crimes, uh, meantime, it's, you know, we can't go it through bullet... Well, <clears throat> we don't... We can't necessarily go through it, like, point by point, because it's just... There is no point. <laughs> no, it's just people in the house or <laughs> out and about being agitating and difficult and cross and sarcastic and bored. And it's just various locations and setups. But, you know, it does begin showing us the whole family of people we're going to get to know across the uh, hour and 40 something, is it? Yes. So we. Uh, Quite actually, quite weird music throughout. Like it's kind of slightly plinky plonky jazz, jazzy piano, and I don't know how how would you guys? It's not not too jazzy. I don't know. I I think that's being kind saying it's jazzy piano. Like jazzy in a sort of. They abstract. used to play this on the piano out of tune in a saloon. Mm. Yeah, I don't mean it's not like literal jazz. It's more just it's not like a clear melody being played. It's not like a beautiful piano. It's just there to sort of, I don't know, evoke something. And it was quite obvious as well. It wasn't like a subtle score. No. But it comes through throughout to kind of give a bit of an accent to the scenes, a bit more than just staring at bleakness. I suppose like the, the overall effect, because it's quite minimalist. It's just essentially one janky sounding piano being played now. Yeah, again. janky. Um... And it it does have like a like an odd sound to it. It's a, it's a little. It doesn't quite fit, but then I think it's 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 supposed to kind of like throw you off a little bit, which worked and didn't work sometimes. I found. I think it's it makes it the film more artful, but then in being artful, it makes it more sort of questionable. <laughs> so mm. of you know. Uh, successful piece of music behind the movie but it sort of um it punctuates throughout the film and makes moments a little more than what they are and uh it's just like we get like a sort of gray pond with people jogging we don't even know what's happening and then it's we get uh, a family coming home to a uh middle class suburban home and it, it sort of starts off with a little hint it's like um What's the name of the characters here? It's Barbara and who does Alfred Belida play? John, is it? Mm-hmm. They're the auntie and uncle of our protagonists, and it's their house. And so there's a slight—they're slightly overbearing. Like they have a patronising tone to the two nephews, and uh, the the I guess father-in-law and stuff. There's like a we'll tell you what to do and instruct you like your simpletons. Uh, because Tim Roth is a simpleton and Phil Daniels is difficult, uh, to put it mildly. And so they're, they're, but it's just they're a little bit cringe in their 
like instructions. They're little. There's too many instructions. They have to be like, oh, take your shoes off, boys, and put your socks on the radiator, and don't sit there. And it's like, oh, who are these people? And obviously, the parents of the two boys are like uncomfortable being there. Like we find out this perhaps because they're rich and a little seem a little bit happier uh, in comparison to them. But it just has an incredible fresh. Uh, frustrating tension to it that we don't quite know where it's going yet, isn't it? Mm. Oh, just Findled- Phil Daniels sitting on furniture like a prick straight away. <laughs> Do you guys find it really like? Okay, it's that observation of when his dad tells him off, and he's like cheeky and doesn't do anything, and then his uncle tells him to get down, and he does it straight away, and you're like, and you're like, oh, he's one of those guys. I was too busy reeling from seeing the hair, glasses, and moustache for the first time. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I took any of that first scene in because I was just looking at him going, What is your head? Yeah. Well, I guess, Abby, you're used to Phil Daniels from like uh, Quadrophenia and like, you know, Park Life <laughs> video for Blur. And... <laughs> he was in the stand- like Stenders for a while. Yeah, and he was in that Al Murray uh, Time Gentleman Please uh, sitcom as well. Well, so he turns up, or Phil Daniels. He's in the odd, uh, slightly obscure British film every now and again. But he rarely looks like he did in this. Oh, he's young as fuck, and he looks, I don't know, like a sex maniac in the tr- in training? I don't know. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> I couldn't think of the words there. He looks like, you know, a sex attacker in training. You know, he like he, he's definitely someone who's going to hang around outside parks and kidnap children or something. You guys, he just looks so. Ah, oh. <laughs> he does. How would you describe it, Abby? Would you say what words would you use other than you know what? what well, he you know. sort of had a natural Jericho. Oh, it was more. It was no. It wasn't a Jericho. It wasn't as tight a perm as that. No, it was but that's big... what I mean. It was just. But it was that kind of curly hair that sort of like. What if Dennis the Menace had had a bad day? <laughs> And he had massive DJ Rashid glasses. Yeah, glasses, like everyone did. And just this little Weasley moustache. Like, it wasn't... It was a legitimate moustache, but it was just cut that way. That's like, ugh. And a little gingera as well, so it contrasts with his quite dark hair. And it is just that, well, I'm through puberty, but I'm not close enough to, you know, have anything cool going on. So he just looked like garbage. And then... Uh, you know, his, his brother is played by Tim Roth, and Tim Roth is going for a kind of downtrodden special needs vibe. There's a sort of he gets called retarded occasionally um, in an insulting way, and defended also like he's not. But he really he's not so much that he's mentally ill as he is sort of I don't know like thick to the point, as thick and not unconfident and. Shy and simple, but mainly just because he's abused in a subtle way by both his family and his brother. So he's this sort of shy, cucked man who can't stick up for himself and is not confident enough to say anything most of the time and quite stupid. But not in like a duh way, but in like a just not grasping things quickly kind of way, is he? What's he look like? I mean, any any descriptions or thoughts on Tim Roth's character? But he had big glasses as well, and that sort of non-haircut, where your hair is short 
but it isn't actually a soil. Yes, like, has a barber done this? Or just some scissors fell on you? Like, what happened? And he's in, like, a shitty parka a lot of the time. Uh, Phil Downs is in, like, a very squeaky leather coat, uh, trying to act all Billy Big Bollocks most of the time. And uh, Tim Roth is much more shy, but tries to tag along with Phil or... Not Phil, he's called something else in this. He's called Mark. Mark and Colin. Um, but he's so weird and it's just his dirty little trainers and I don't know it's a really weird character that we get to know and Phil, Phil I think Phil Daniels playing Mark is a little more obvious what his problems are and you you can't quite like you kind of wonder a little bit more I think with with Colin like what's the story here like why is he like this is this he actually like just undiagnosed with a few mental issues or is it literally because of how his family works. What do you guys think? That's, yeah, that's a good, that's a good point, because like, you know, he's kind of like referred to as like slow and stuff like that, but then you don't know if it's just because he's been beaten down by all his family over the years and just become like a really awkward, shy, socially inadequate guy. Because the auntie does say at some point where it's like, oh, he's just never been given a chance. Yeah, there's a heavy implication that she's smart enough to see. It's he's not actually that big an idiot. He just lacks the the know-how to do anything and the motivation. Mm. And she thinks she can maybe eke out of him, and uh, by being nice and treating him like an adult, like unlike anyone else does, not shouting at him. It might get somewhere. It might become more, you know, outgoing or useful or something. So she's mm. the most positive character in this. Um, but early on, just the starting scene is is just to establish this family dynamic of the sister of the mum, Barbara, and her husband. Uh, they are living a better life in the eighties. They're the kind of socially mobile, you know, working. Um, Middle class, like was he like he works at a bank or something? Or there's lots of talk of businessy stuff that he does. She's a stay-at-home housewife, and uh, they have a, you know, a house that they were looking to upgrade and do things with, isn't it? You know, they're happy with the eighties, and the others are all out of work except the mum, and are having a shitty old time of it because they live in a London flat, and everything's falling apart, isn't it? Mm. So there's a lot of resentment from the in-laws. Yeah, I think it's not just that. I think they all kind of not resent, but they all kind of like take out their their frustrations and anger on each other, and it's just kind of like showing that you know their their situation even like even they can't they can't stick together even because they only have themselves to turn on. If you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, there's not that we're in this together. It's we're all like monkeys in a zoo, fucked off and annoyed with nothing to distract us from our own frustrations, isn't it? And we're all a little bit like you know they all have their little problems that they're dealing with that they're not de- they're not dealing with correctly or it's not helping. It's exacerbating things. So I think the dad is called um, fuck. What is he called? Frank. 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 
and the mum is called Mavis. And we basically go back to their gaff and see things how their life is. And it's very, very like I mean, I lived, I've lived in a council estate from time to time. I've known and have been my fair share of working class. You know, like I've 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 been with people who are reasonably poor. I've been with people who are just working class and you know that kind of normal where it doesn't seem unusual. Uh, it's just how people are. Uh, so I definitely related a lot to the. I had a, my my home is not the squalor theirs is, but I've, everyone's lived in shit shit tips where their fucking things don't work or you can't. The landlord doesn't do much about what whatever. And uh, you've also you know met and lived with people who are sort of like you know even though they've got a council house or a council flat they're basically may as well be homeless because of how shit their life is isn't it maybe it's not that bad maybe not homeless but like just depressingly on your ass isn't it Mm. broken everything's worn out sad how do you guys react to their fucking horrible flat Mm. It was like, I do remember places like that. Especially that sofa. <gasps> so putrid. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's part of the thing of the poster is uh, Tim Ross' character, Colin, is like lost in a, in, a, in a big sofa seat or whatever with just the horrible brown fabrics and pattern and it just looks so soft. Kind of too comfy. But just filth. Absolute horrible looking. I remember more of the 90s style where it was like slightly more chintzier and upmarket but that stuff, if you go to the right granny's house in the late 80s early 90s, you know, definitely see horrible furniture like this I don't really want to I'm trying to remember people but at the same time I don't really want to out them mm. well. <laughs> no, no name and shaming <laughs> <Don't think. laughs> but we all could relate to the oh Christ Anthony, you must have known the odd person uh, who you went to their house and it was a, a dynamic not dissimilar to this. Yeah, I suppose. Maybe your own house occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> no offence. A lot of yelling. But there's a friendly family yelling in, in your house and my house, I think, where you just you want to get the attention of someone far away and you're not going to walk over there rather than <laughs> you know a built-up resentment. I like that's just a universal thing. It's just, it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. You don't want to walk to the bottom of the stairs. <laughs> whether or not you send a butler or whatever. <laughs> ring, ring a big bell. Well, you touch, dingle, dangle the bell. You ring a rope that's hanging up in your parlour and it gets someone else to do it. <laughs> and then know. the parents just substitute that for one of the children. <laughs> I see. Baron, go get your father. <laughs> That's far too nice. Um, but it, like um, Pam Ferris as Mavis is this endlessly suffering uh, mum. It's a very like constantly in a horrible tabard, always smoking with a foul face on a like with a fucking resting bitch face thing going on, but also angry because her fa- uh, her husband and her kids are kind of annoying. And she's the only one who works and everything. And, like, her washing machine breaks. And we just get a good example of how everyone deals with it, where the dad's, like, utterly useless. And is like, well, I don't know, do I? And then it's, like, Phil Daniels is sarcastic. And then Tim Roth is used as, like, oh, can you get you give it a go, Colin, get it open, and he's useless. And then his brother just tells him to kick it, and he kicks it. 
and it doesn't work, obviously, and then he gets kicked. And it's just like it perfectly exemplifies this this way the family works, where everyone has a different way of being annoying, and everything sucks. And so that was you know, the scene with Legcam. Yeah, we don't. We everyone's shot like it's uh, the adults in Charlie Brown. <laughs> So just from the waist down, coming in and out of the room. He loved people coming in and out of rooms and corridors in this. And I was down for it. Yeah, there's a few rooms in their, in their flat. And so Mike Lee gets a lot of uh, mileage out of the way they all sort of go around. Like we get a kind of... It's just There's one scene later on where they're all... Like Colin's in the toilet and then everyone else wants to use it. And it's like morning time. So people have their routine going on. But like... We, we we sit at the end of the corridor and it's a bit like Scooby and the gang going through all the different doors and coming out and back in and being chased. But instead it's just the father, the mum and the other brother going up and down the corridor, shouting abuse into the bathroom, going up the corridor, disappearing. Another one comes out, sticks the head round, comes down, complains. The other one goes, I'm first. I'm no I you know, I'm going in. Oh, shut up, shut your face. Oh, come on, dickhead, what are you doing? You know, like just they all they do it for it's a good while they're all walking up and down the corridor changing places and it feels natural to them but it looks quite weird after a while doesn't it I do remember that though not so much in my own house but whenever you went on a caravan holiday that's what it was like I've I've stayed over at your house everyone wants to go to the bathroom at the same time in the morning everyone wants to do their little brush the teeth have a wee, have a wash and they all, like your brother seems to be constantly suffering from oh, they're in there and I want to go in there (laughs) yes, I'd forgotten about that you're right maybe it's just, you know, something that happens subconsciously or just, like we all have that pattern We, we find where we all have a routine that coincides yeah, in that routine, I was the one that was always resolutely remaining in bed until it sounded like everyone was finished and gone away. That's no good if you need to catch the bus, though, is it? That's true. Got to rush, got to brush your, sink, brush your teeth in the kitchen sink, complaining, eat some toast, don't like the taste of toast with mint, <laughs> haven't spat enough of the toothpaste away. Ugh. Yeah. What, was the, what would you say is the first big bit of story because it's like you know they go to the pub and nothing happens for a bit don't they i wouldn't really say i think that's kind of like the point is that there isn't really a story it's more just you know you you have these characters and how they how they interact and what their relationships are it's a bit like beckett i suppose less abstract a little bit yeah yeah, you know, like, it's not about waiting endlessly for something that isn't coming so much as, you know, not not knowing what to do when you're not waiting, because life is waiting. The only, like, bit of kind of plot, I suppose, is when um, the auntie offers the job to um, Colin. Colin and and everything that goes on then. Uh, yeah, that's a good. That's well into it as well. That's like probably yeah. the second half of the film. Yeah, but up until then, I think most of the focus is on kind of Mark and Colin and how they go about their lives. Pretty much just kind of like walking the streets, um, fighting with their friends, being sarcastic. There's a quote that I think is fairly indicative. Woman comes into the pub. 
Have you seen Michelle? Who's Michelle? You know Michelle. Oh, no. It's a woman leaves. <laughs> <End> <laughs> I think there's a lot of that. Like, they, in order to get to the end bit where we do have this, oh, a, 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 like a bit of structure and a plan of what, uh, like a, a story that starts emerging. Uh, we have to set up these people as just being like caged dogs in an environment with not much money to go around, not much to do, and not much to say. <laughs> so it's just ang- ang- antagonizing each other. And I think they also introduced Coxie, the skinhead, who's friends with uh, the two boys. And I say boys, they're like meant to be just over 18 or something, are they? They're about 20-ish or 18-ish or something like that. Late teens, we'll say. Uh, but they're all on the dole. That's the thing they establish is that, that the dad and Colin have to sign on and together at the same time, and they do, and they do this incredible job of making you somehow sympathise with a woman who works at the job centre. Because I've, having signed on for a, a little while in the past, I there's no I, you can't wring sympathy out of me for people who work in the job centre because they're very, like, not asked but also difficult. <laughs> And I find a few people are friendly. You get a mixed bag, but there's definitely a sad vibe at the job centre even now. But this is probably the bleakest job centre scene I've ever seen because it's just a queue of broke-looking people all waiting to just sign on the dotted line and answer the the inevitable questions and stuff, isn't it? But there's a lot of tension between the woman who works there, the dad, and then Colin, who's so useless. He like can't answer questions properly, doesn't know what his fucking surname is sometimes, has to be told. And then just put he offers like a dirty handkerchief. And I think she says like, where'd you keep it? My pocket. Like he's just so infuriatingly shit at passing on any information of use, isn't he? Uh, what's the dole office giving out cigarettes? You mean like the little gold thing they get? Like little box. Yeah, I swear, she gives them the little gold boxes full of cigarettes. They don't deny that. Thatcher snatched away milk. She's not going to be handing out fags instead, is she? (laughs) (laughs) It would have just been some I don't know, pay packet? I don't know, they didn't get the money there and then, did they? They just uh, I don't know, maybe they did, I don't know. I don't know how it worked, it changed, didn't it? All got computerised, of course. But I just, just the observations Mike Lee makes where Colin's useless and can't do it, and his dad's sort of impatient a little bit, but also sort of trying to defend himself to the, you know, the the rebuttals from the job centre lady. And she's, you know, exasperated by all these people. And so, but the, the dad dynamic is just, I'm going to be difficult, even though I, I, you know, just have an argument when you don't need to have one. And it's just, oh, it's just so cringe inducing. And it, you know, it's that every scene is like, crush these people. But it really sets the tone of look how this is it. Like people sign on the dotted line, and then they got nothing to do with the day. They just sit in quiet pubs, and like the dad does, and the like. Uh, Phil Daniels is basically playing pool like a dickhead with his friend, and they, they like you said, Abby, that dialogue you gave, like nothing. <laughs> People saying nothing, doing nothing. And Phil Daniels deliberately is confusing all the time to everyone. It's beyond sarcasm. It's like, you don't know whether he's going to fight you or be nice. Mm. I, you didn't necessarily get a sense that he knew either. He just, whatever you did, he had to contradict what you were expecting from him. 
So the times we think, oh, here we go, he'd be nice and like, oh, catch you off guard. And then if you if you ask him a reasonable question, he'll instantly like say the opposite. I did like his kind of like dynamic with his auntie though, because she was she was a bit of a foil for him. Yeah, in, in many respects, because like she She's... was she was the only one who could like deal with him. Deal, yeah, deal with him. Like the only, you know, she kind of like she took all of his sarcasm in her stride, and just kind of like sort of fired it back, but also disarming it. He diffused. She diffused all of his clever things to say. So like the dad always gets wound up. So everything Phil Daniels say says. He's basically trolling everyone and coming up with, like if he if you ask him a straight question he'll, he'll make a joke or be sarcastic or just blatantly lie and you don't know whether you're coming and going with him and he, everything he says is unhelpful and annoying and so the auntie is like really reasonable and never rises never gets cross she's even when he's being genuinely assertive and putting physical barriers in a way like he puts his knee up on the furniture to try and stop her physically he tries to make barbed remarks about the state of a marriage at one point and she's just like oh that's fine oh is it really and then she even calls him on his bullshit in a really mild way it's not like i'm annoyed with you it's like she totally gets him and she's not like gonna fall into his traps that he sets for everyone else so it is like the perfect sparring partner for him because everyone else is instantly antagonized by him. Even Gary Oldman, who plays Cox, he's friends with him, and they they get they get on, so they don't annoy each other in the real. They seem to their friendship is based on fighting, throwing things at each other, dicking around, saying mean stuff, and then surprising. Like there's a scene in the pub where I think he's like. You're an idiot. Oh no, what's he say? Did he say idiot or he says you're you're not as stupid as I am. You're really oh fuck, I can't remember now. You're as thick you're thick you are, and he's like I'm not as thick as you. No one's as thick as me, so it becomes like an argument about nothing. Yeah, I thought it was it was a kind of it was a weird relationship, uh, Coxie and Mark. It was a bit the, ambiguous, wouldn't it? Yeah, it was. Because on the one hand, you do have the kind of, oh, we're best friends, we can insult each other, um, and it's fine. Uh, but then it's kind of like um, Colin it starts to hang around with Mark a bit more. No, Colin starts to um, hang around with Coxie a bit more, sorry. And Mark is a bit like... Uh, like I think it's hard for him to kind of articulate it. And it comes out quite, you know, mean. But I think he's trying to keep them away from each other because Coxie is a bit more of a bad influence. But also there's an element of jealousy as well. Like, there's definitely jealousy issues. Because uh, Mark is this overbearing, bossy brother who sort of controls him like a lion tamer. He controls his brother because his brother looks up to him, but he's also thicker and easy to abuse and bully. But... There's also this bizarre relationship where Colin comes to the defense of Mark all the time because they are in it together. So his brother's a prick, but it also it's all he's got, so he likes him and is defensive of him. And so I think Mark's constantly sort of jealous if, if his brother gets any attention or gets any success. But he's also quite quick to be moody and walk off from any situation. Even when it's fine, even when there's no problem, he seems to just... Oh, I'm bored, I've got to leave again and go bet on a llama or something mad. 
Like, there's just this boredom and this frustration. And I think it's mainly jealousy that gets in the way of them working as a brothers who, you know, they'd get on properly if they, you know, could deal with that issue. But, uh, yeah, Coxie's interesting because he's a skinhead and a dickhead. But he's also a bit pathetic. Like, there's a Ooh. scene... He, the, the, there's a, this expectation there'll be a bit of tension, racial tension, when any black characters in it. We get like a sub story about a like a young black couple who are accidentally pregnant and trying to sort out the, their flat before the baby comes or whatever. And there's a confrontation with, uh, in the bar as well, where like there's just a black guy playing a fruit machine, and Phil Daniels is like trying to get a drink in for. I think it's initially about their friend, uh, their the female friend. I can't remember her name now. Does anyone remember her? The one who's really shy Hayley. gets bullied. Haley. So it's initially about getting a drink for Haley and trying to get Colin, you know, talking to her or something because he doesn't like to talk to anyone, really. And it becomes about this black guy there because Gary Oldman's like, oh, a black guy, I'm a skinhead, I'll be a dickhead about this. And then Phil Daniels just turns it and is like, no, maybe I'll give him a drink. And then he's going to get this random like guy in, in the pub a drink and then he just says, like, he calls him like a black bastard or something. And then he's like, "Oh, only joking, mate." And I will, and he does get him a pint, and he doesn't get his own friend a pint, and he's just a contrarian and confusing. And and he leaves. Down, yeah, he just downs a pint and leaves. Yeah, it's like I don't know what to make of it. Like they, they try and like, what is that as a friendship where you sort of are antagonistic and then con- contrary and difficult? I don't know. When I said that their relationship was ambiguous, I meant more very occasionally there's like a weird sexual element to it well in that like boysy like almost like a rugby team sort of way like oh putting your heads together and stuff isn't it mm. like, almost like that I, I, I'm flirting with you because I'm like that kind of pulling your hair so to speak I know he hasn't got hair but like you know mm. <laughs> being a dick because I sort of fancy you do you think there's like a kind of just every thing? now and again there'll be something that he says or the way they look at each other and you're like there's something weird going on here get a room and don't <laughs> vandalise don't vandalise that room you, you cads I thought that was more of a kind of a tension between uh, like say Mark and Coxie they don't I, I wouldn't say they really like each other but they don't really have anyone else to yeah. be friends like the, with and they're the sort of a bit of on, tension sorry. there because of that it's like they're so they're pathetic losers that no, they don't have many friends. So if anyone gives them attention, it's good. So if they they tolerate each other and are friends because no one wants to be their friend because they're annoying and outsiders or something. Because it's not like Coxie has a bunch of other skinhead friends he hangs around with sometimes. Like if it was Shane Meadows, there's cases and examples. There's examples where oh the skinhead had friends who are skinheads and some of them are more serious than others and things like that. But Gary Gary Oldman is just playing this like lost and alone skinhead who wants trouble, but just because it goes with the territory of you know having a disgusting jacket and DMs and a bald head and one of those woolly caps that is so at the back of your head is almost like a Jewish little cap thing, <laughs> but it isn't. I don't understand why why I mean your head would be cold sure. So wear a cap. Don't have it at the back of your head. Oh, it's such a horrible look, isn't it? The kind of disgusting what bomber jacket, <laughs> dirty jeans and shit. Oh. I didn't get a good look at his boots, but I thought they looked okay. Well, the DMs is smart enough. Twenty pound, mate. Even back in the eighties, that's insane. 
Um, but yeah, it's just uh, there's just lots of like go nowhere scenes like this, and also like well, I guess one of the other tension, uh, one of the early scenes is full of tension. Is so in the lift, Colin and uh, Colin and Coxie are going up up in a lift in a flat, and then some Jamaican British guy comes in with a pram, a really shitty old stroller or whatever and gets a, sort of rams his way in, in the lift with them and then this guy's clearly tougher and not intimidated by this this coxy skinhead prick in the lift with him and there's just a general tension of don't start with me and he he totally makes Gary Oldman's character back down he like puts him in his place and like shouts to him something doesn't he when when coxy's looking to tell like some inappropriate joke he gives him the fucking evil eye and like shuts him up by shouting at him. He hits him, doesn't he? That's the thing. Mm. And he's like a little sad, scared puppy then. Kind of takes all of his frustration out on Colin then when he's free from the lift. He's just Everyone's like, always kicking Colin. Colin. Yeah. <laughs> like an abused puppy as well, isn't he? Yeah. No. I see, I'd feel sorry for him if he wasn't the fucking mouth breathing. <laughs> <laughs> And the sort of uh, monosyllabic answers to everything. Everything's just like, yeah, no. What have you been doing? Nothing. What are you doing tomorrow? Nothing. Where have you been? Nowhere. It's like, oh, answer a question properly. <laughs> like, Phil Daniels answers every question like a dickhead. And then Tim Roth answers everything with no information. <laughs> Even when there is an answer that we know he's deprived us, nowhere. Nothing. Who? <laughs> Or just the pauses, the insufferably long. He's going to answer, but just no. Oh! <laughs> but he's abused, and we feel sad. Apparently, also Gary Oldman had like what looked like pop marks or scratches on him, and that was from like some accident in the rehearsals where a bulb broke and like glass like, sort of fell on Gary Oldman. So it sort of played into his kind of beaten up skinhead vibe. What do we make of Gary Oldman, particularly like when he's bullying the woman who they're friends with in her flat? Um, what do you think of his performance in general in this? He like comes it's... across like a yob, and it's very well observed. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's it stands out a little bit. It's a little more over the top than everyone else. I think it's because he's uh, he's trying to be funny. Oh, I think he's trying to be funny as a character. Like he's. He wants to be loved a little bit, and and he wants to have fun and be a, a like a skinhead. But you think it's a bit OTT? A tad, like a, it felt a bit. At times, it felt like a bit of a caricature. But then I suppose that like you could say that that's that's the point. He's trying to put on that facade because really, you know, he doesn't really have as strong values mm. being a skinhead as he might want people to think he does. And he's not as tough as he makes out. So he bullies yeah. Colin and he bullies this woman, but he can't. St- he doesn't stand up to the black guy in the lift. Um, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't look like he, he wants to fight anyone for real. And so I think we get this. I think it's just, I don't know. It's such an uncomfortable scene, right? Because it's their friend and Colin is supposedly fancies her, but can't say anything to her. Uh, Haley, like, right? Literally. Yeah, so Haley lets them in while her mum's out and is being perfectly 
reasonable in a quiet, mousy, shy way. So she's there. She's been in the pub with them. And she's we've established he's a friend, but she's let them in, and then like there's nothing to do, and so Coxie is like, you know, he just gets asked to take your or you take your boots off the couch, and like a big prick, he's over over the top, like stomping his feet on the couch and being a prick, and he just directly starts bullying her, and be, like you don't know whether he's going to genuinely get quite aggressive and physical or just like he ended up snatching a pillow and like jumping and standing on things and it just goes he just says oh you're gonna cry are you and stuff and it's like oh my god this is the worst if anyone who's seen bullying happen in real life it really hits some of the key notes of what bullies do when they're complete assholes and then and then it fucking becomes this apology that he, he manages to coax like a smile out of her and Collins and we keep cutting to Tim Roth just breathing and staring because he's got this kind of autistic I'm interested in her and I have no ability to stand up for her so I'll just watch everything that's a weird move isn't it just being there and staring and not defending her he's still got a sense that he would like if he understood how he would you want him to don't you it's like He's so cucked out of doing anything. He obviously is, wouldn't stand up to Coxie because Coxie's quite intimidating. But he does end up shouting at his parents. So he does slightly stand up for himself a little bit. But he's just so shy and so, so like timid. He he can't do anything. But also, it's like he's fascinated as well. Like he's learning bad like bad behaviour or something. And she, you know, doesn't say anything for herself. So she's sort of so meek as well. She doesn't say like you know get out. She just puts up with this prick shouting at her, and then he ta- when he talked around to liking him again, I was like, "Oh, don't! How can you?" Like that, some other friend comes in, and they start to have a bit of a laugh when they're kind of bullying Colin further, stuffing him in a closet, and then th- she thinks he's he's gone, and she's like, "Oh, he's a funny chap," and then they show that he's there still, and so there's just this endless uncomfortableness throughout the film that never really lets up. It just changes to which character it's about, doesn't it? Yeah, it hasn't occurred to me that it's just, it's all the same tone, but about different people. And everyone is equally awful. Oh, the guy with the windows. Oh, oh my God. Yeah, that's yeah. a real new brand of uncomfortableness. Go on. The A couple of the windows in the flat are broken. Of and the they family get, flat, right? Yeah. And one of the council people comes around to... Have a look and well, it's it, like it's set up by Tim. Is uh, Colin's trying to cook eggs and he's doing a really bad job. And the mum comes home and discovers what a shit fucking job he's doing. I start, it's like burning, and the dad hasn't done anything. And she discovers then that the window's sort of falling out and she calls for help. And, and the dad even defends him a little bit and says, Well, at least he was trying to do something. But anyway, sorry, the guy, and he's just this guy, right? He's just this guy, yeah. He's okay. got the sort of vibe of Neil from the Young Ones, but also crossed with a yuppie. It's the weirdest thing. Yeah, he's essentially the guy who comes pre the maintenance guys to do a bit of, like, to check what the problems are, to see what needs doing. And he's got this mm. cod philosophy ex-student vibe. And the auntie's there briefly as well. And so she's part of what, sort of a social... It's like almost flirting, but more like a kind of... He sort of was more interested in her because she's more attractive of the two sisters. And she he kind of directs his attention at her a lot and argues uh, in a casual way with her about 
don't know, economics, but he's so douchey, isn't he? He's like, Anthony, how would you describe him in the scene? Like, did it grab you as like a really standout? Oh, God. It was almost absurd, really. Um, mm. I, I, I think, you know, like, uh, him and the, the woman at the job centre, you know, are supposed to, like, represent the, the system, you know, that they're living under. Mm. I think the the woman in the in the job center kept keep saying like, you know, you don't have to make it so difficult for us, like you know, like they're the ones who are having a hard time, and like this guy is like the same as well. He's like like that, his delivery is so odd, but again, you know, he kind of gets to that that kind of patronizing thing where he's talking about dust and ant hills and. And stuff like that. It's unbearable. Like, he starts off being uncomfortable because he's like, every sentence ends in okay or yeah, and do you know what I mean? And like, it's really that full 80s yuppie, like, yeah, yeah, I'm clever and I know stuff, but also I'm I'm completely chill uh, and I fucking absolutely solved my philosophies on the world. And he's just awkwardly being different. Like, the, he's got these two working class parents trying to get him to do his job properly, and he's quite slow and he doesn't even sit on a chair, he crouches, and everyone's like, do you want a seat? And it's like, I'm just going to be here on the crouching. And the moment for me that I lost it was just like, he gets, he's in, they're asking him, like, are you done? Are you going to leave? And he, and he and he puts the pad and pen he's got down in very neatly. And he gives that spiel about, like a big metaphor, a shit metaphor about how, oh, the worker ants, man, and the, the dust and the... It's better. To, it's basically it's better to solve a problem before it gets worse. Like a stitch in time saves nine, and he just takes so long doing it and being obnoxious in this patronising, I'm anti clever way, and it's just awful. And just to, the the conversation he gets in with the auntie, and she's so like she's she's basically explaining how reasonable the idea of money is, and it's like it's it's kind of a stand-in for like oh so Thatcher's Britain, reasonable people are like yeah everyone needs money. You know, you work, you make money, and you pay for things. It's a natural part of everything, you know, and it's like... And it's met with this, like, oh, yeah, but that's the system and all that, man. And it sort of... It portrays both sides as an option that you could take. Like, the philosophy student who thinks it's all, like, the man and I could make food for myself. And then they've got the parents who are, like, fucking exploited us again. Like, the kind of trodden-on working-class people view of fucking system bollocks and then the nice middle class woman who's like well it's fine isn't it everything's fine so you've got that three the three options of what thatcherism could be and then it's brought it's just but it's also about landlord problems and tension and just getting windows fixed isn't it it's really to me it's one of the pivotal and important scenes mike lee put in it you know Mm. do you guys um Think it was more? Do, do you agree it was like more than just an uncomfortable bit of observational comedy? Yeah, I think it's it's uh, probably the moment in the film that's the most kind of like uh, allegorical. Was that the right word? Yeah, at, at, at least the most kind of like symbolic, because the film, you know, it doesn't kind of like throw in your face any of its kind of like political leanings or the message it kind of like you know it just kind of shows you life and you know 
and then you you can make up your own mind kind of thing. So I think this yeah. is like, kind of like the only point where it's you know trying to be a little bit more symbolic. Yeah. Good. I was just hoping I wasn't just like you know making it up myself. There, you know. There's some nice observations just about, like, all the dialogue is so well observed about the general comedy of, like, people's language in the household, the arguing, being about when they come in, soon, and just, oh, how soon? They'll just, you know, today, tomorrow, soon. And just the parents arguing about, what did they say? They said they'll send someone round. Well, when? I don't know. They just said they'll send someone round. It's just all that, the minutiae of regular life and the conversations that are kind of funny once people are wound up enough. I don't know. But it does this scene also leads into the big important story aspect that happens in the last half, isn't it, where the auntie is about to intervene. These people are living these boring shit lives and she's seen potential in Colin to I guess be rescued. She sort of takes him as a little I'm gonna help him in an auntie way and give him a job and I'm gonna patronise him and explain to him very clearly but like he's a human, not like a fucking thing to be kicked aside. And she sets up, a, she's basically going to have him do some painting in the house, but she structured it in a, I'll pay you a wage, you'll have a, this amount of time, and a, and a break, and I'll make you tea, and I'll give you money for the bus. It's very much like, I will teach you structure, I'm a bored housewife, I'm going to parent you because I haven't got kids, and I will, I've seen potential in Colin, and maybe I can coax out of him. And it's very hard, because he mainly just sits there mouth-breathing and fiddling with a couch when he shouldn't. So, what do you guys make of uh, the auntie doing this and intervening? Was it cringe on her behalf or his, or just interesting in some way? Yeah, it was. It was kind of hard to read again because, like, there's the surface kind of level where, like, they they did have a conversation, like her and her husband in bed, about you know maybe you know we can help them, kind of thing. Um, but then there's also the kind of patronizing thing where it's like yeah I, I can help you you know oh but you know I'm only going to pay you like one pound an hour kind of thing oh, but I think the the one the price is debatably because the dad brings it up like that's not a proper wage and it is just what well, he doesn't know how to paint so I'm kind of doing him a favor so and I also don't know how what price that is in the 80s that could have been you know enough I don't know what do you think you think it was a bit too cheap of the auntie or <laughs> I think that's the point they were trying to make. Like, she... Like... Like, perhaps she herself is a little bit symbolic of, you know, people then trying... Taking advantage of these people and... Give give the little people a little bit and show them yeah. that working get Working gets you this little reward that you need to get by. I'm, I'm helping by keeping you at a low minimum wage, exploiting you. Also not telling the job centre that I'm going to pay you this decorating work, essentially. Oh, it's off the books. Yeah, it is, it is, yeah, I think you're right. It is symbolic of how Thatcher's Britain worked. This idea that we're doing everyone a fucking favour by exploiting them. And the thing is, like, the saddest bit about that is that she is well-intentioned. Yeah, and she is, actually. This, If this goes right, which it obviously doesn't, this would be good. It's exactly what she should do as an auntie is help her nephew get into the working world by seeing it doesn't have to be the easiest form of work. Because everyone's work shy, but there's no jobs anyway. So 
it is just come on coaxing gently, isn't it? Do you think it? She is. She's not being mean here, is she, Abby? No, I get the sense that she's well-intentioned, like somewhat selfish in the sense that after the scene, you get a sense that she's like lonely in the house on her own. Yeah. So she might want to have someone around to keep her company. I think but it's a the... substitute parenting thing as well, isn't it? Yeah, but I would like I wouldn't condemn her for that. Where it's like, oh, you're lonely, so you invited your nephew around to help you decorate, and you're going to give him some money. Sounds well intentioned to me. Yeah, sounds sounds good, and it, it, it's kind. You should be rooted for it because Colin has been this downtrodden, kicked about, pathetic idiot, and he's been given the chance to shine, and he's he's trying his best not to shine because everything is like, oh yeah. I was very, when she's like, "What would you like to eat?" or trying to sort out what to cook for him, he's very quick on the burgers. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's the first time he seems to have any sort of want from life, apart from maybe buying some DMs. But like he, he doesn't. He gives so little. Like she, you have to coax him so hard. I guess because his brothers got got him whipped and in line, and he's just pathetic. So. It's, he doesn't have anything to say. He has no opinions and thoughts that he, he lets out anyway. And, and it, that's you know. well. Another thing about that is he's completely understimulated. It's like how how was he going to learn and develop in a world of nothing? Yeah, and the auntie offers a, the perfect package to get you up and running and get you the confidence, show you can do something, and get you actually doing and there's an element of pride when when all the, all the family are cynical towards it even the parents but they're happy i guess the parents are happy he's going to do it and even trying to get some of the money off of him i need half of the mum is like trying to say that you know to pay for the whatever's in the house uh and, and he's like no and it's his money and there's a lot of arguing but like, the parents are supportive despite being cynical and obviously phil daniels as mark is like jealous but also suspicious and like he's been left out he's, there's two nephews why isn't he being asked and it's because the auntie's motivation is to help Colin and I guess Mark is like well you're smart enough you, you, you will spoil it is the, everyone knows that he'll spoil it and he does spoil it that's the thing <laughs> he gets like Colin gets all the instructions to get to the suburban house and he's totally like he's given nice clothes to wear so he can be smart and the auntie has prepped everything perfectly and just where is he? Oh, who's this at the door? Oh, it's Phil Collins, not it's Mark. Come to be a prick and to come up come up with a fake excuse of I'll come to visit you. And he does the perfect job of walking the line of Well, I'm gonna obviously be lying, but you can't call me on it if I just say I'm here to visit you. And she has to be cordial and nice. Mm. And she is, and she just she doesn't take the bait. It's so good. A really protracted scene with her and Phil Daniels where just the two of them are having an adult conversation where, where he'll be immature and like say things that are trying to find problems and create tension and she f- deals with them all perfectly. Anthony, you were kind of saying you, you, you already mentioned this scene a bit. Did you think this was effective? Did it go how you wanted it to or was it frustrating or... I think it was just it was it's kind of nice to see someone who could be a foil to to Mark at this point because he's just been endlessly sarcastic and just making everyone angry and it was just kind of like funny to see her just easily be a foil for him you know 
and not in the same way. Like she just her lightness and niceness, and when she takes him seriously, and then if he ever does cross the line, she asks him politely not to do something or don't be silly. She's never infuriated by him. Maybe inside she is because of what we see at the end. She's he sort of wins what he wants to do, which is spoil everything because he's jealous. Like everyone knows he's there to spoil it but he's allowed in the house and he's allowed to stay but they have to go looking for Colin because somehow he hasn't turned up up. yeah he's fucked up somehow we don't know how though because he does get there on his own but he's not as quickly as he should have I guess he's he concentrated really hard got the right train and was trying to find the place based on her directions so he took his time and he did he got there in his weird walking manner but it did mean that uh, there was a little trip out to the station looking from where the auntie and the and the and Mark could have some tension that never quite builds because she can deal with him. We just get a sense of how they how they're going to spar the rest of the day, isn't it? Hmm. But Colin's back at the house, so it can all begin. It can be fine, and it takes so. But he's pouting now. Colin goes into full blown pout mode. What do we what do we make of Colin's shutting off? business what did it tell us about him psychologically well i don't know about that but i think i think kind of like the whole point is like as an audience member you're meant to be kind of like frustrated with their behavior um because essentially that's how they feel you know yeah and it's it's part of that thing i think like abby's had a problem with films a lot before, where the intention of the film, they do it well, but that's not kind of like how you want to feel. So with this, with this film, it's it's you know it's presenting you with all this kind of like moments of like like hopelessness and boredom and uh, frustration, and you know it does it so well that you. If you have it's, empathy. It's, yeah, but it, but it's also like it's hard to watch. Like I yeah, get, I was climbing the walls really quickly. <laughs> like I don't get that very often. I usually, you know, when when a film is supposed to be dark or disturbing or meant to like rile you up, like I I kind of like, and I do appreciate it. It does it well, but like with with this film, it's like it was so frustrating. <laughs> like by the end, I really wanted to like kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> It's so protracted, isn't it? Like the fact that Tim Roth doesn't speak when every like Phil Daniels is being annoying and has got him slightly under his thumb, but the the auntie can get nothing, nothing, and she's being so nice and getting close, and he sort of bats away if she if she tries to touch him, but she keeps persevering. I think it's the fact that she keeps trying and Phil Daniels just being there being this Mark character prick with his shitty moustache and his annoying attitude that is enough to keep Tim Roth in check and so eventually it lets up and, and he runs away, like Colin goes frustrated and then weirdly we stay and we we let Mark talk to the auntie and be difficult and keep barbing her and she never gives in and they have conversations that kind of you know slightly get to the fact that she's got a fucked up marriage that she hasn't told her husband that they're going to decorate and it doesn't need decorating it's just something she's doing so he's sus there's something suspicious but he still he has nothing because he's just been the immature one and she hasn't rose up 
she hasn't got cross with him or told him to fuck off or leave. She's let him stay as long as he wants, but isn't going to make tea anymore and is just disappointed and sad about it because she's failed to get Colin to help and he's won and he's ruined everything. But it, I, I was surprised how it kept going and like it is this, it sort of wallows in uncomfortableness, doesn't it? Which is hard for a movie mm. watcher. Yeah, but then exactly. I think it's. A, it speaks to the empathy. If you have any empathy for this situation, these people, if it's believable, it's, it crushes you. As a, it just, just oh my god, you know, like Abby says, she's crawling the walls. You just, <laughs> you're just rooting for it to go right, and it never will. Because Mike Lee's a bastard, <laughs> <laughs> and Thatcher was as well. See, that's the metaphor bit. Do do we think the movie? was right to go back to the auntie later and show that she was like properly sad because at this point she's defeated and we think she was the good character in this but then we see more of what had been alluded to when uh, the husband comes back um, what was his name I can't remember now John, John. It was a little, like I wasn't sure why she asked if he ever fancied anyone yeah, because she'd been drinking gin and sitting in the room where they were going to do the decorating, right? Mm. And then Alfred Molina's back and he's just like in after work mode where he wants to sort out tea and get undressed and he doesn't really want to deal with his drunken wife who's... He doesn't really care. He's like not picking up on the cues that she. this is more than just she's being silly and a bit drunk. This is a cry for help and he's completely missing that, isn't he? Mm. It's very Coronation Street a little bit, doesn't it? <laughs> But what do you think? Was it about that some there was an implication that she wanted to have an affair or that he might have or they just didn't have... They seem to be a very boring couple where life's just about building extensions on the house and making money, not actually about like, having a nice life. They had, Also, there's, they didn't have kids or nothing. And What do you think? Yeah, well, um, like... Well, she's important to the one bit of plot that does happen. Her life is not particularly sketched in. So it's it's very it's hinted at. Yeah, it's hinted, but you you don't know what her problem is. You can just sort of take educated guesses. Yeah, good good acting though, because you can see on her face the the behind the teary eyes and the the looks. There's there's a clear like you fucking dickhead. You you don't get it, do you? And to the point where he goes on about, well, I'll make food then, and she just ends up saying, oh fuck off. Because <laughs> it's like she wants to have a row about the issues, and I and is a bit drunk, and he is just like this dope who she's married, and it it's not working in some way, and it's just uh, I think it just shows that no one has it perfect, and yet Finnell Daniels as Mark takes away this idea. I think when he goes home, he he talks about how you know basically he's jealous of his auntie's life. They seem to have they've left the slums of London and are living a nice, cute life. As far as he can, and he also lost the battle of wit, so he may have got what he wanted, but he she never cracked, so he probably feels a bit pathetic. But it's all left unsaid. It's just the frustration explaining it to us through psychology and actions and stuff, isn't it? Mm. How does this film end? We kind of don't. It doesn't have a proper ending, does it? We just we just find out. Colin goes to what's her name? He goes to Haley's place, but she can't let him in because she's only just come out of the shower and her mum's not there. So he leaves. Then 
we don't see him get his head shaved. We just find out. Like, he won't take his coat off while he's at home. And everyone's like, why are you taking your fucking coat off? You're like, yeah. And then in the morning, um, Mark sasses out that he's shaved his head. Pulls it down. That's more or less the end. They just have a little chat and a smoke. Yeah, I think it's a, it's it's mostly about the division between us and them. The parents and the sons are on different sides of the family dynamic. Like, Mark and Colin get on enough. Despite Mark abusing him and using him and being jealous of him, he's still there for his brother a little bit and kind to him in a in occasional pockets and moments. And so, and, and because Colin shouts at his parents when they've been yelling at him for ages, because they've basically, he's, they slowly work out, uh, they, like, Phil Daniels tells them, like, oh, he didn't go, or I was there and I ruined it. And uh, so he didn't do the painting in the end. And so it's all about this, didn't you go? What happened? They're kind of just slowly finding out that he didn't go and he bottled it and he ran away from it and could have made himself a little job and made it, made them proud or got them some money and just they it becomes like a four-way well three-way argument with Colin just sitting there pouting and pooding until he gets too cross and kicks them out of the room and so once the, the parents are sort of kicked and shut out because the kids are old enough to sort of do what they want and the mum's even listening on the other side and it just becomes like Phil uh, it just becomes like uh, you know Mark and Colin together in solidarity but also this is all still a big lose everyone still has a sucky bullshit life and for some strange reason Colin has shaved his head but despite claiming that he didn't like doesn't like it and doesn't quite know why and it's not because of cox he has a bald head and is a skinhead it's just some sort of attempt to rebel or what I don't know he sort of done it out of frustration but it's sort of this I've... unexplainable thing isn't it yeah, like I've been there where it's just. Can I shave your head? Why not? You feel like a haircut's going to change something, and then it doesn't really. And like I'm. You wear. You, yeah, you want to rebel and do something, but. Yeah. He's hungry, but he, he, they, you know, he's missed. He's missed tea, and his mum perhaps would get him something if he sort of says anything or is nice or, you know. At any point, if Colin had had enough uh, ability to just explain, I don't want to do this, I do want to do that, I want this, I feel sorry, I am sorry, I'm not sorry. If he could just talk, he'd get somewhere, but he's just had it all beaten out of him by his brother's subtle psychological abuse and his family not listening and being aggressive rather than reasonable. So I think, you know, he's his own worst enemy, but he's that way because of everyone and the times. I think that's what we're trying to paint a portrait of is everything works on people and spoils them and makes them to makes them mean. Maybe it is like meant to be a pun like mean time. Time to become mean because life's hard and mean and negativity's easier than positivity, isn't it? Yeah. Oh. Oh, we got all intellectual at the end. Are there any bits in your notes, Abby, you want to bring up? Have we missed? I mean, there's loads of little moments, like the, the black couple have an argument about shit the pram is. And we also see at the laundrette, because the, the... I just remembered this bit. Um, going to the laundrette, where Haley and Colin have a conversation. A really boring one, because Colin isn't much of a talker. And then the the black woman is there, and she chips in about her pregnancy and things, and 
we do get a sub story about a pregnant black girl who's having a shit time because her boyfriend is trying but is shit. And that's provide, the guy with the you know, pram, isn't it? Yeah, the pram guy. He is got this second hand pram, but it's really dirty and horrible, and it's all mashed up. She says, and it's got to go. And so that we get another little pocket sub story of their. They're also another people at the bottom of the rung of the ladder trying to make a go of life, and it's miserable. So we get, and we see her in the lift, I think, later on, and it's just, there's just that, oh, no one has anything to say to each other because life's so boring. I don't know. But it, there's a few bits in there, so if there's anything else in your notes, Abby, you know. Yeah, any, quotes, any quotes you missed or anything? It's very quotable because it's all full of horrible, sarcastic lines. There's but, just um, things... I don't know what they are or what they mean. Go on. For example, double baked beans. Uh, yeah, it, oh, he's had double baked beans already, and it's like, is that is that two little cans on toast, or has he had two full cans of baked beans, <laughs> just like a cowboy? Uh, the phrase "screwing me out." What was that? Who said that? I think it's what he was saying when it was Coxie. When he lost his rag with uh, Hayley. Yeah, it's just one of those, I've heard that one before, swear jobs, I suppose. Mm. And just how much I really did in, enjoy him fooling around in that bucket, having fights with cigarettes and lampposts. Yeah, like he gets <laughs> a cigarette off Tim Roth to light his own, and he throws, he sort of shouts at the cigarette and fights it <laughs> and ruins college cigarette and is a dickhead and fights a lamppost and he just wants to pick a fight with the world but he can't take any, anything more substantial than an inanimate object or a little girl or a young woman or a, or a idiot uh, no because that's the thing this isn't a film of notes of things that happen oh there's the one thing where you think this is the same place as in 15 stories high oh yeah the Sean Locke sitcom I think is set in the same block, uh, like the same the same outside location outside the the store, London Tower blocks. I think it must be the same area. So that was weird for me because I recognised it from the sitcom Fifty Story Sides. Oh, Sean Locke walks through there and goes to that place, and that was a curry shop, you know, twenty years later, <laughs> in real life, and, and another sitcom or another comedy. But yeah, anything else? I mean, the, most of the lines in this are just people being horrible so it's just in fact I looked up the quotes on, on trivia uh, it, I, I looked up quotes on IMDB the only quote is Mark Muppet Colin I'm not a Muppet <laughs> and I think that sums up all the back and forths with everyone there was the bit at the pub where I think he says it to Hayley it's like have you read the line of Witch's Wardrobe what see ya yeah, oh, there's so many bits that go nowhere. That's the thing. So many bits have to go nowhere. They're just, they're just texture to understand the people. But it's just like, what is that? What is that conversation? They're believable, but they're also infuriating, aren't they? Everything about this makes you grind your teeth and, I don't know, reach for a fucking razor blade because <laughs> it's so <laughs> frustrating. What about you, Anthony? Any bits that you think we've missed or could have talked about? we might have mm, I don't think so how did it sit with you you sort of implied it you found it a little trying was it something you could see the art of it or was it 
why would you want to experience this kind of bleakness? Uh, yeah, like I, I do appreciate. Like I think it, it, it does what it set out to do. You know, um, it's just you know what it set out to do is make you frustrated and angry at. The, you know the, the situation that they're in to empathize with them mm. um well that's thatcher's britain isn't it rubbish and mike lee's telling you it was rubbish it is rubbish it needs to change it's awful this is what life was mm. it's not what people put in glossy magazines yeah and then the, the whole film doesn't you know it's complicated it doesn't have you know a it doesn't have a definite message if you will Mm. Um, and the characters are very complicated. You like you, you think you kind of like understand their motivation, on on part, but then it also feels like it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Again. And then the film, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really resolve, which is kind of like the right thing to do. You can't like, give this like some sort of like, happy resolution. You can't tie a bow on a turd and call it a present, can you? <laughs> I wouldn't go that far, but it's it's like you know it 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 it's the sense that you know this will this will keep going on. But by, by the morning, there's almost a, we've gotten over this row. Like rows are so commonplace in the household that there's a sense that look we've been through this. The boys are just still going to live here, despite uh, Mark saying he's going to move out and that he hates it there. They're still kind of having breakfast, and there's a sense that it's going to. They're just going to move on from this, and it'll still be the same there. Hmm. And there's also an element of, like, the the person who's watching it, because there's going to be people who watch this that never really experienced it. So for them, it'll be like an interesting view into that side. Whereas for us, where it's like, we've ne- I've never had it as bad as they had it, hmm. but I had it enough to know what it feels like. You've come within smelling distance of that kind of frustration. Mm. But not to like truly relate to it. But it seems familiar and believable. I think that's the thing is as a film it, it is frustrating because why the hell would you can't you don't watch it to enjoy you watch it because it's great performers doing a great job of building tension and arguing and playing around and being real. It's a real honest piece about society and the times and how British people can be and I think for me it's like it says something politically but it also doesn't you don't have to take that you could just take it about the psychology of uh, frustration and family problems and you know it, it works on a lot of levels and it's some good acting with some great actors who go on to bigger projects most of them I think and it's just a nice showcase of all these people, what they can do, and what can be said with such a nothing story. You don't have to have a story to tell a tale worth, you know, showing. Mm. I think it may it might suffer a little from, you know, it could have been more formulaic, a little easier. It could have had peaks and troughs rather than just an onslaught of irritating behaviour. And so the fact is full of irritating characters. The only one really is the auntie who's nice. So it's a little unrelenting. That could put a lot of people off and makes it a harder watch. So, But that is the point, so you can't really argue. Mm. <laughs> you can't go, oh, it would be nice if it was nice. But it, yeah, then it wouldn't be what Mike Lee wanted to do. So, 
I think it's really successful, but also very hard to watch, but also funny. So that, that's what you know. You know I also also I. I also enjoy the f- disgusting nostalgia of it. The oh, look at how awful everything looks and is, and the hair, the mustaches, the glasses, the clothes, the furniture, the setting, the fucking life, Britain, the real Britain. Oh, fuck me, the pubs. Oh, look at them, you know. So it's got that kind of looky loo fucking look at the past. Jesus. Anyway. You, Abby, was it a success or a a thumbs up, thumbs down, really? It's like... It's quality. It's well observed. But I'm not the person who needs to see it. I don't think a lot of the people who need to see it and would learn from it are seeing it. Because the people who need to see it and understand it is the bloke who is the maintenance landlordy type guy who's got all his COD philosophy. He needs correcting his behaviour. Maybe Alfred Molina's character needs to watch it, but and even if Phil Daniels and uh, and Tim Roth's characters are there, they need, everyone who's in it needs to see it. But it's not no one watches it like that. Maybe you'll catch it on TV and learn something. Mm. I mean that's the trouble with these sorts of things is the people who need to see them and would learn the lesson are never going to see these things. Cool, well enlightened people end up watching it. It's a hard film to recommend to someone. Oh, yeah, you, you wouldn't yeah. recommend finger na- fingernails on a chalkboard, would you? But you'd still say it's hell of a sound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we can't. It's not a recommend, but if you like being tortured, if you're if you're a sadist, then yeah. Right? If you want to have an immersive sense of this era, do it. This w- yeah. this will inform you as to exactly what it was like. But if you don't want that. Do not watch this. Yeah, I think if if you know Shane Meadows type stuff uh, is your bag, then this is like the prototype for where that ends up going. I think as well, like it's you can work backwards. Start with accessible things like uh, what's that? This is England and stuff, and you you know, watch the more modern ones, and you go. But the heritage is here. The ones that were actually made in the eighties. This is this is it. This is what was going on at the time. So. Yeah, it's fucked up, but it's weird and interesting. But let's leave it there. That's, uh, um, you know. In the meantime, you can check out our other podcasts. There's endless supplies of them. Any film you like that we've done. That's the caveat. Which is a lot. They yeah, are a lot. Good. over yeah. 300 and uh, umpteen more to go. But catch us next time for another one or look back at an old one. Because uh, there's plenty of meantime, and we all need to spend it doing something while we wait for something significant to happen again. Toodles! <laughs> bye bye. That was one of your worst ones. Thanks. Bye!